you're confronted with a song of Mary. When Mary finds out that the Holy Spirit has come upon her, it's called Mary's uh, song, and that's found in Luke chapter 1 in verses 46 through 56. But then there's a second song you come in contact with, and that's found in verse number 67. And this is the song that I want us to look at today. It is Zacchaeus, or excuse me, Zacharias's praise. Elizabeth's husband, John the Baptist's father, uh, he has gone through a tremendous ordeal. As a matter of fact, when you look at uh, the Word of God, just a little bit of history before we read the text, Gabriel had a conversation with Zechariah and gave him four announcements. The first announcement, he said, is that you and your wife are going to have a child. You've been praying for this, and you're going to have a child. And he made that announcement. He made a second announcement, and he said, even though your wife's old, she's still going to conceive, and it's going to be a boy that she's going to deliver. Number three, that baby boy, you're going to call his name John. And number four, John is going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about those four things as being reported to Zechariah, uh, when he heard that, when he heard it, he was bum-fuzzled. Y'all know what bum-fuzzled is? That's the southern term for confused. He's confused. He don't understand. What do you mean? He says, I'm an old man. My, my wife's an old woman. What do you mean we're going to have children? I, I don't understand. And in essence, what he did was in struggling to believe what God had just said to him through Gabriel, uh, we find out that uh, this struggle was real. And because, the bottom line is, because of his disbelief, Gabriel shut his mouth. God allowed for his mouth to be shut, and he was not going to speak, he was not going to talk until he obeyed God and named that baby John. While he was in the uh, temple during his time of service, all of this took place. And when he came out of the temple, he walked in talking just fine. He walked out and couldn't talk at all. And as a matter of fact, when you uh, look at Zechariah, you see that the spiritual challenge that he had was simply trusting the Lord and taking the Lord at his word. Why was he struggling so hard spiritually? I mean, here's a man of God. Here's, according to the Word of God, someone that loved God with all of his heart. Uh, the Bible tells us that him and Elizabeth were righteous before the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verse number 6, he says that uh, Zacharias uh, had been clean, saved, made righteous. He was part of the redeemed as the members of, of God's family. Now, let me say something else. He wasn't perfect. His standing before God wasn't perfect. But he believed the Messiah was going to come. But he was challenged because what he had just gone through. He had just gone through a severe lifetime of unanswered prayer. You know, it's hard when Christians don't get their prayers answered. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of Christians that have been so discouraged because God hadn't answered their prayer that they turn and begin to walk away from God. I wonder if Zechariah ever felt like that. We know that he struggled. He struggled because he challenged the Word of God. He challenged what God said. God said, you're going to have a baby. And he says, I, I think I need a sign, God. I, I think I need you to give me the sign. God said, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Be quiet. And he couldn't talk at all. And the Bible goes on to say that not only was, do we get the impression here that he was struggling because of this unanswered prayer of him and his wife, but he was also struggling because he is just coming off 400 years of silence. God had not spoken for 400 
years. This was such a problem in Israel that uh, they began to allegorize Scripture. They began to spiritualize the, the Torah in such a way that they thought, you know, maybe we've got this thing all wrong. Maybe we're looking at this uh, through a different light. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, God speaks and says the prophecies are all true. Zechariah, your son is going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And even in this old age that your wife is, she's going to bear a son, and you're going to call his name John. I don't know that I can believe that, Zechariah said. I need a sign, and a sign he did get. As God shut his mouth the whole time, look at what the Scripture says at John's birth in Luke chapter number 1. The Bible tells us, beginning in verse number 57, just for context, the Bible says, Now Elizabeth full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins uh, heard now the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. It's a boy, it's a boy, praise the Lord, verse 59. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias, after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none in thy kindred, kindred that is named this. Nobody in your family is named John. Why in the world do you won't name him John? The Bible says, verse 62, And they made signs to his father, and he, what he would call him. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. The first words out of Zechariah's mouth when he finally could talk after he obeyed God was to praise God. How did this praise come about? What was this praise all about? I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse number 67. The scripture says this, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading 
of the Word of God. If God shut your mouth for eight months and finally loosed your tongue to be able to speak, what would you say? Here's a man, the last words that he heard from God was that his wife was going to have a child, and that child was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. In his unbelief, he asked for a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign and shut his mouth. And then when God loosed his mouth, when his lips began to speak, the only thing he could think of was praising the name of our God. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture. When Luke wrote this, he wrote to a man by the name of Theophilus. And he wrote this in such a way that he wanted Theophilus to know that Zacharias' innermost desire was to praise God for the Messiah was on the way. This text contains two praises that call our attention uh, to remain in a position of praise during this Christmas season. Let me show you these two praises in this text. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is a praise to God for salvation. A praise to God for salvation. In verses 68 through 75, we see Zacharias praising God for salvation. There are four things we can learn about praising God for our salvation. Number one, the first thing I want you to see that we can learn is we should praise God for his visitation. We should praise God for his visitation. What do you mean? Look at what the Bible says in verse number 68. The Bible says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. The first thing he says is we ought to be praising God. We ought to be shouting his praise, singing his praise, because he has visited us. Surely Zechariah was thinking about the Torah. Surely he was thinking about the day of creation. Surely he was thinking about when God created Adam and Eve and walked in the cool of the day with Adam and spoke with him and visited with him on a regular basis. And then the sin came into the picture. And as sin came into the picture, Adam and Eve were released from the garden, kicked out from the garden, and an angel was put on point saying, nobody else will enter into this. And the, and the world was cursed. But God, in his great love for mankind, did not stop his visitation with man. Through the centuries, God has visited man time and time and time and time and time again. To the point where Zacharias gets to the age, and as a man of God, as he works for the Lord in the temple, he knew the scriptures, and surely he had heard that his wife Elizabeth had just been visited by her cousin Mary who was great with child. And to hear the account as to what happened to Mary, that the Holy Ghost had come upon her, and that she was with child, and the child that she is bearing will be the Messiah. Surely upon him hearing this, and then hearing what the angel Gabriel said to him in relationship to his child being the forerunner of Jesus Christ, surely his mind went back to Micah chapter 5 in verse 2 that says, But thou, Bethlehem, Epaphrata, through those Though thou art small in the clan of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient 
times. And that was exactly fulfilled just as God had said. We understand very plainly that he rejoiced over the visitation that had come from God. God had visited Zechariah and said, I'm not done with you. Even though 400 years have passed, even though you haven't heard me, even though you think I'm done, even though you think I don't care about your nation, even though you don't think I care about your life, I'm not done with you yet. That's why I get so excited when an 81-year-old gets baptized. Because God's not done yet. We should praise God for his visitation. Number two, the second thing I want you to notice in the text is we should praise God for his redemption. Did you see what he said there in the text? He says, not only has he visited us, but the Bible says, for he hath redeemed his people. He talks about this term redemption. Redemption means to buy out. The term was used specifically in reference to the purchase of slaves in relationship to their freedom. The anticipation of this term uh, to Christ's death on the cross is quite telling. We are redeemed. We are bought out when we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. No longer a slave to sin, but bought out by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we have been redeemed by his precious blood. Uh, the Bible teaches this very clearly over in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse number 13, the Bible says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hang, hangeth on a tree. Again, in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says this, Paul, speaking to the church at Galatia, says that Jesus Christ came in such a way, let, let me get in verse 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law why to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons brothers and sisters God has adopted us as sons through the blood of Jesus Christ all of those that have come into salvation those 12 precious souls that received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord yesterday they came and were adopted by God Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the strength of that adoption does not waver. God knows exactly who his, children is, who his children are, and he will not lose a one of them. We should praise God for his redemption. He has bought us from sin. Number three, the third thing I want you to see in the text is we should praise God for his majesty. Look at what he says in verse number 69. He goes on to say, and... He hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. We should praise God for his majesty. So where do, you, where do you see that, Pastor? I see that in this horn of salvation. The horn of salvation is mentioned many times in Scripture, many times even in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word horn signifies many things. Obviously, literally, when we think about a horn, we think about uh, a, 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 a piece of a, an animal that comes out uh, that's, that's like a, a bony, a bony-type structure growing out of an animal's head. Animal horns used for what? For fighting, used for protection, used for security, used for dominance. Uh, it became a symbol of strength in the Old Testament and also became a symbol of power and also victory. Oftentimes, Scripture mentions the horn as a literal symbol representing 
power and potency. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that the horn of salvation is Jesus Christ, and he is powerful enough to save anyone from their sins. We often see this horn of salvation in Scripture. Uh, we see in Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, the Bible says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. Again, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, in this passage of Scripture, we see that the Lord is salvation. That's Jesus' name altogether. He is the horn of salvation. You can blow the horn and say, He's the only way of salvation. You can blow the horn and say, He's the only one that goes before us into battle. You can blow the horn and say, He's the only one that gives us victory. The point that Zechariah is making today is he's praising God because God, in His great love for us, has visited us, he has redeemed us, and his majesty covers us. Number four, the fourth thing I want you to see here is I want you to see how we should praise God for his revelation. We should praise God for his revelation, verses 70 through 75. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 70. He says in the text, he says there, he says, and he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. When I read that passage of Scripture, I cannot help but think about the revelations that have come down through the, down through the ages. And it looks here, there are four that Zacharias mentions. W what revelations are you talking about, uh, Brother Zachariah? Tell, tell us, dear friend. Well, the first one he talks about is salvation. Did you see what he said there in the text? Look again at verse number 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Now, Zechariah was, was speaking politically. He's talking in the context that the Messiah is going to relieve us from this Roman occupation. And from all of those that have occupied us, we're looking for the Messiah to come. We clearly understand that that's not the only reason the Messiah was coming. He's coming to do that. But he's coming in the first place to bring us salvation. And that salvation is the forgiveness of sin. So he tells us first and foremost in relationship to salvation, he tells us there in verse number 70, he says, as was spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you the very first proto-evangelium, the prototype of, the, of, of uh, the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in Genesis chapter 3 in verse number 15 where the Bible says that the Messiah will crush the head of the snake and it will only bruise his heel. We see first of all he praises him for the revelation of salvation. Number two, the second thing he praises him for in, is the revelation of mercy. Look at what the Bible says in verse 72. The Bible says in the text, to perform the mercy. What mercy? The mercy promised in many of uh, all of our Bibles. It should be italicized. That's an implied word. Why? Because he's talking about covenant. We'll get to that here in just a few minutes. But before we get to the covenant, I want you to look at the mercy. He tells us here in this passage of Scripture that we are to praise God for His mercy. If there's anybody that clearly understands the, the element of mercy, it's Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah was having a difficult time believing the Lord. He had just gone through this uh, issue where he looked down through the portals of time, and for 400 years, God had not spoke. When the Old Testament shut, there was silence hundreds of years. 
And not only that, here's a man that was righteous, the Bible says, a man that loved God, a man that served God, a man that obviously desired to please God, yet a man that struggled from the perspective that he didn't get his prayer answered. And when he said what he said to the angel, when the angel said, your, your wife is going to have a child, and he struggled with that. And in struggling with that, God could have told Gabriel, said, kill him right there. But mercy is always getting what you do not deserve. Brothers and sisters, we deserve death. And that death could bring with it separation from God. But God in His great mercy loves us enough to send His one and only Son to die on Calvary's cross so that we might obtain the mercy of God And His mercy is rich because He has given us such great love. And by the love that He has extended to us, He has given us grace. And it is by grace that we are saved. And what great mercy God has given us. He says, I want to praise God for salvation. I want to praise God for His mercy. I deserve death, but He's given me life. And then He says this. Look at what He says. He says, I want to praise God for his promise. He says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There's a lot of debate on the covenants of the Bible. Uh, There are uh, a couple of different covenants, but there are uh, five that are of the utmost importance. Uh, The Noahic covenant, when God makes a covenant with Noah and says that I'm not going to flood the earth anymore, and he offers that rainbow, uh, which is always meant to be a symbol of God keeping his promise. We have that covenant. We also have the Mosaic covenant where God made a covenant with Moses. We got the Davidic covenant where God made a covenant with David. We got the new covenant that God made a a covenant with with all of the nations. And now we have the most important one, and that is the Abrahamic covenant. Surely this is the covenant that we think about, for he mentions Abraham's name here in the text. Look again at verse number 73. He says, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. He's thinking about the Abrahamic covenant. What does the Abrahamic covenant say? Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 says this, I will bless those that bless you, and whosoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He simply says that this promise that has been made from God is that he will bless those that bless the nation of Israel. He will curse those that curse the nation of Israel, and all people of the earth will be blessed through the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today the Abrahamic covenant includes you and I as born-again children of God. We find here in the text, he's praising God for salvation. Thank you, God, that you kept your promise. Even though time had gone by, even though I struggled with the time that had gone by, even though I didn't get my prayer answers, you you are keeping your promise. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you, God always keeps his promise. He always keeps his promise. He promised to give us eternal life. He promised us that there will be no height, no depth, no things in our past, no things to come. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. He praises God for his promise. And then number four, he praises God for his service. 
for his service. Look at what the Bible says in verse 74 and 75. Very quickly the scripture tells us here in the text. He goes on to say that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Dear brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you that he is praising God and so should we for service. For the service that we offer to God, we should offer our bodies, according to what Paul says, a sacrifice, which is our act of worship, which is the reasonable service we give to God. And in this particular text, he says our service looks like two things. Did you catch it? He says the service looks like, number one, holiness. Notice what the scripture says again in verse number 74 and 75. He tells us here in the latter part that we should serve him without fear, verse 74. And then verse 75, how should we serve him? In holiness. The word holiness means to be set apart. And the set apart that you and I are set apart by being in the New Testament, looking back through the the portals of time and seeing this praise at Christmas and, and us exercising this praise at Christmas, we praise Him because only Jesus can make us holy. As a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, you come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, and the Bible says that we're a holy nation. We're individuals that have been separated from this nation. We're separated in such a way, not that we're better, not that we're to puff ourselves up and walk in an arena of pridefulness. No, we are different because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so he tells us here in the text, he says, we, I want to praise God for the service that I have to him. And this service is to serve him in holiness. And then number two, the second thing he says is to serve him in righteousness. You see, it's right there in the text, again, I call your attention uh, to, verse number, uh, to verse number 75. He says, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. As long as we live as born-again children of God, we are to live holy, righteous lives. So what does the word righteous mean? Uh, in the Old Testament, when you think about the word righteous, it always has to do with relationship. Being in right relationship to God. If you are righteous before God, you are in right relationship with Him. By definition, it means a more broad definition to be morally acceptable in your behavior. Uh, The behavior that we have before God is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, when the Lord looks at His children, He sees blood-bought, adopted children that He loves, that He's created, and that He desires for them to serve and be in right relationship with Him, to be righteous before Him. My question to you today is simply this. Are you in right relationship with Jesus? What about your quiet time? What about the time you spend in prayer? What about the time that you pray for your family, for the ministry, for your service? Righteousness is a relationship with God. To live for righteousness means that we wholeheartedly realize 
that sin doesn't please God, knowing that we are still in a sin-sick world. And we exercise 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, knowing that we're not perfect, but knowing that we are conformed into the image of Christ and His desire is to mold us and to make us into His image, knowing that, that nothing, nothing can get in the way with that relationship between uh, us and God in relationship to our salvation. Jesus paid the price and He imputed His righteousness into us so that we'll never lose our salvation, but we must walk in relationship to Jesus Christ. We find here in the text that Zechariah, in praising God, praises God for salvation. And then the second thing he praises God for in verses 76 through 78 is he praises God. We see a praise to God for a son. A praise to God for a son. In these verses, verses 76 through 78, he just praises God that he answered his prayer. All those years back when he didn't think God cared. When his wife Elizabeth was barren without child. God heard that prayer. and God answered that prayer. And now that his tongue is loose, he praises God for not only the salvation that has come through Jesus Christ, but he also praises God for the son that God had given him. Look at what the Bible says. There are three things we can learn here in this text. The first thing we learn is that salvation comes only through the forgiveness of sin. Look at what the Bible says in verse 76. Follow along with me. He says, And thou, child, that's John the Baptist, thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his Ways. Notice what he goes on to say here in the text. He says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Salvation comes by the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had your sins forgiven? Do you remember the day you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? It's a 14-year-old boy in a service much like this. Listening to a preacher preach, I can't tell you the text he used. I don't know the points that he made. Don't know the illustrations that he used. This is all that I know. I know that my mind and my heart were fixated upon the fact that through the course of that sermon, I realized that I was a sinner and my sin had come against me before God. And if I were to die in my sin, I would forever be separated from God because my sin had separated me from him. But I heard the greatest message of the Bible. That God demonstrated his love for me. In that while I was still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for me. And at the end of the service, he gave a gospel invitation. And say, if you want to be forgiven of your sins... And be in right relationship to God. I want to invite you to come forward. And I want to share with you how you can have your sins forgiven. And be in relationship with God. Boy, that invitation was given and I made a beeline to the front. I wanted more than anything for my sins to be forgiven. I wanted more than anything to be right in right relationship with Jesus Christ. And on that day. I could remember March 22nd, 1988, 14-year-old boy, came down front. My principal was standing there. I gave my hand to my principal. He shook my hand. He said, why are you coming today, Shane? I said, I don't want to die in my sin. 
I know my sin has separated me from God. Mr. Davis, will you please tell me how to be saved? We got in the altar, and he took me down the Romans road. You know where that led to? Jesus Christ. And as a 14-year-old boy in 1988, I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear me. Please listen to my heart here. I did not hear the hallelujah chorus and a bright light did not shine down out of heaven. But I'm telling you just as sure as I'm standing here today, the burden of my heart rolled away. My sin had been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith, I believed that he paid the price. And I confessed with my mouth and I believed in my heart. And on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. My sins were forgiven. He praises God for a son. And in praising God for a son, we see that salvation can only come through the forgiveness of sins. Number two, let me show you a second thing. The second thing we learn from this text is that living lost, living lost is an uncomfortable seat. Look at what the Bible says in verse 79. The Bible goes on to say here in the text, he says, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of of death. What, what are you saying, Zachariah? You're praising God for your son, but yes, he's praising God for his son, but he's saying to us, living lost without Jesus Christ, living lost without the Messiah is a very uncomfortable seat. It's like sitting in a dark room. Do you ever, you ever feel like that? Maybe you're lost, you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. You feel like you're just sitting in a dark room, hunting around for the light switch. This is what Zechariah says here in the text. He, he says that, John, it's your responsibility. I'm praising God, for I've been told by God that you, you're the one that's going to help flip the lights on. You're going to cut the light, and it's not going to be on you. It's going to be pointing to Jesus. He is the light. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We mention it often, that word perishes in the present tense. Gives the idea that people are actively today perishing. They're today in the dark, searching around for the light switch. And we as born again children of God, praising God, especially during this Christmas time, say, we know where the light switch is. We know where the light, and we know where the source of light is. It's Jesus come to Jesus. Living lost is an uncomfortable seat. Number three, the third thing we see here in the text is that peace is a road that leads to Jesus. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 79. He goes on to say in the text, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that the text is very clear to tell us who that peace is. Uh, Luke, as well as John, and others are going to say that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's the only one that can bring peace to your life. As a matter of fact, uh, John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be Afraid, Brothers and sisters, Jesus said he is the peace. Now, I want you to understand this very clearly. 
there's a social gospel that's going on and around our country today that says you come to Jesus Christ and he'll give you peace and that peace looks like prosperity. That you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord and all your cares are going to go away, all your problems are going to go away, all your challenges are going to go away, all your heartaches are going to go away. Everything is going to be wonderful. You're going to have absolute peace. Listen to me very carefully. That's not the peace the Bible's talking about. We're not going to have that kind of peace until Jesus comes again. The peace that we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture that he's talking about. He's talking about the peace that we have in relationship with God, our Father. We have a peace with God. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you today that in relationship to my salvation, the peace that God has given me, I am so saved I can swing over hell on a dry cornstalk. So what do you mean, Pastor? I'm telling you today that Jesus, being God the, the Son, has the power to not only save you, but to secure you to the point where nothing can separate you from the love of God. Can I show you this? Let me show you this. If you have your Bibles, find 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, in verse number 13. Many of you know this is my favorite verse. In 1 John chapter 5, in verse number 13, the scriptures say this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you and dear friends that maybe you're questioning whether or not you want to trust Christ as your Savior. The Bible tells us in the Scriptures that you can know that you have eternal life. And that knowledge of eternal life is not found in religion. It's not found in being a Southern Baptist. It's not found in being a Methodist. It's not found in being a Pentecostal. Uh, it's not found in any religion. The peace that we're talking about here in this passage of Scripture and the knowledge of truth as to where you're going to spend an eternity is not found in a religion. It's found in a relationship. And that relationship is with Jesus Christ. And Zechariah, the first words out of his mouth when he realizes that the Messiah is coming, he rejoices in such a way to praise God for his salvation even though I haven't heard from him ever in my lifetime, uh, Zechariah says, he has spoken to me now. And I praise him, for he will keep his word. And I praise him, for even in my old age, he has answered my prayer. But in relationship to the application of this passage of Scripture, we see that salvation comes only through the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can forgive you of your sins. Number two, living lost is an uncomfortable seat. Did you see what the text said? It says it's, you are living in the shadow of death. David said this about the shadow of death. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. You know the difference between lost people and saved people and walking through the shadow of death? Believers should fear no evil because God's with us. And then the Bible says here in this text, he says that peace is a road that leads to Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus in chapter 2 is born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is born. And that little baby grew up, and at the age of 33, being the Son of God without sin, went to Calvary and stretched forth his hands, and they nailed him to the cross, his hands and his feet. And as the Son of God, he said, I love you this much. And he died for us. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you, dear friends, today that death is chasing all of us just as it chased Jesus. Death one day may grab us. It grabbed Jesus. But it didn't know what to do when it got a hold of him. It could only hold him about three days and then it had to turn loose. Why? Because he's not like anybody else. He's the son of God. Death will one day take us. We'll either go to God by the grave or by the rapture. In relationship to the grave, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. Yesterday, in speaking to those individuals that came through the Toys for Joy, at the end of every session, I would ask them to bow their heads in prayer. And we would pray, and I would begin by asking this question. If you were to die today, do you know for sure where you'd spend an eternity? And time after time after time after time after time. There were people that would say, I hope so, I think so, maybe so, I don't know. No. There was the occasional, yes, yes, I do know, Pastor. For brothers and sisters, the bottom line is simply this. You will not get to heaven any other way but by Jesus Christ. And the Bible says today you can know. Could we bow for prayer? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning as we close with a hymn of invitation. Maybe you're here today and maybe you're lost. Maybe you don't know where you're going to spend an eternity. I want to invite you today to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to ask you right where you're sitting, from your heart to God's heart, in the quietness of the moment, would you say this to the Lord? You don't have to say it out loud, but would you say this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning I ask you to forgive me of my sins. The best that I know how, I repent of my sins, and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you in Jesus' name.